Turn your Bible to, to Nehemiah 13. We're going to finish the book today. We're going to start in verse 23 in just a moment. You can find your way there. I did want to ask, though, have you ever heard the phrase, when the cat's away, the mice will play? If you're, le- like, younger than 15, have you ever heard that? If you're younger than 15. Okay, so some of you all have old parents. Um, my kids raised their hands. Uh, it's The meaning is innocent enough, right? When the person in authority is away, the mice will do whatever they want. They'll have fun. They'll shirk responsibilities, those kinds of things. We've all seen this play out. When I was a kid, I have a brother who's four years older than me. And so when I was around 10, he was around 14. He was home by himself. And the rule at, at the Omis house growing up was no animals inside. No exceptions. <laughs> Even though we all desperately wanted to bring that beloved kitty cat in the house. Well, my brother's home alone, 14 years old. Our cat had recently had kittens. The pressure was too great for him to bear. And he brought the cat and the kittens in the house. And uh, as you can imagine, when you're having fun and disobeying the rules, time got away from him. And all of a sudden, he sees lights coming up the driveway. And so he's got to get those cats out of there in a hurry and back into their box. And so in his rushed uh, effort to get those cats back in their cat box, he tripped his big toe, got caught. You know the little tiny loop on the top of a backpack? His big toe got caught in the top of that loop and he broke his toe. Getting the cat, I don't think any of the cats were injured, but um, he broke his toe. And it wasn't one of those situations where, you know, it's a scrape, you can wear long pants for a while and avoid coming clean. He had to admit what he had done and what happened to get the broken toe. When the cat was away, the mouse was playing, and... It's funny, that's a funny story, we laugh about it still, but there's something similar like that, but significantly more serious going on in Jerusalem right now, with Nehemiah at the end of this book. He has been gone for a while, we're not told exactly how long, uh, could be two to, to ten years, somewhere in there, um, and now he's back and he's realized, man, while I've been gone, things have really started to kind of get out of control. The mice have been playing, if you will. And so he's doing his best to try to reform things, to try to get the people back on track. Um, he talked about the, uh, we'll, we'll see again, he talks about the two points of the covenant that he's already dealt with. We talked about those for the last two weeks with the Sabbath most recently, and then also with temple worship and reestablishing order and, and all of those things. And um, we see just clearly how the people's hearts can quickly be turned away from right things. And surely, and I, I hope as you, we've been walking through this, and I, you've heard me pointing out our own similarities, the similarities of our hearts in here, just like the scriptures we read from Isaiah and Jeremiah this morning with the clay in the potter's hand. If you didn't know that you were clay in the potter's hand, you know it today. And if you are honest with your own heart, you know that you're a lump of clay that likes to try to mold itself. And that's what the people here were trying their best 
to do. Their priorities were out of whack and they needed to be realigned. If you missed our, our talk last week about priorities, I'd encourage you to go back on the website and listen. Um, but this is the, the third and final and maybe most serious point of the covenant that the people had agreed to back in chapter 10. I'll reference that again, but you can kind of put a finger back there. But before we go on, let's read the text. Chapter 13, verse 23, through the end of the chapter. And then we'll pray. In those days, I also saw the Jews who'd married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, not the kids, he's not confronting the children, he's confronting the Jews who'd married these women. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him, made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all of this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Verse 28. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Let's pray. Lord, we, we pray similarly. We say, Lord, remember us. We're confident, much like Nehemiah, that you will. You have not forgotten you have you have not overlooked your people, and in that is is tough because Lord, there's times when your your visibility of us, your hand over us, is is discipline, and it's even judgment. And even in those times, Lord, we still ask, Lord, remember us. And so I pray, how, whatever state you find our hearts in this morning. Lord, as we as we cry out, remember us, Lord, that uh, you would, in your loving kindness, uh, show mercy. Help us to find grace in uh, what you have provided for us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, again, this is the last three points of the covenant that the people have made. And it hadn't escaped Nehemiah when he comes back. Uh, it hadn't escaped him that, that there was that this problem was happening. Uh, the people had disobeyed the covenant of God and had started marrying ladies from other surrounding areas. Uh, if, you, if you just kind of flip back to chapter 4 of Nehemiah, verse 7, these nations are mentioned. And they're, they're mentioned as being hostile towards God and his people. They were apparently, the text there in chapter 4, verse 7, says very angry that, the Israelites were making any kind of progress on the wall in their rebuilding of it. 
They didn't want to see God's people prosper. They didn't want them to possibly become a threat. They wanted to own them. They wanted to keep their thumb of oppression over them. And so when they were beginning to do work under Nehemiah's leadership, the people were like, this, were saying, this is, this is bad for us. And they were angry. They were not friends of God's people or God himself. If you look at verse 24 of our chapter 13 here, it, it kind of reveals the, the seriousness of the situation that half the children born to these relationships, they spoke languages not of the people of God, not of the Hebrew language of Judah. Uh, if, you, if you know um, the, the location area of, of geography there, Ashdod is a Philistine town. You remember the story of David and Goliath. You know that the Philistines hated God's people. They wanted to annihilate them. They did not want anything good for them. And so we've got a Philistine town um, who were perpetual enemies of the Jews now being kind of assimilated in to what God's people were, were doing. And I just want to point this out again. I don't think that speaking a foreign language is really the problem here. Okay, just because they could speak another language wasn't really the issue. The problem was that it revealed that these children... They weren't properly trained in the ways of God. That was the big issue. They couldn't even speak the language of, of their forefathers, of those who God had made the covenant with. And so it wasn't just the language that wasn't Hebrew. It was the fact that they didn't really have spiritual training at all. It was foreign to these people. And that fell on the fathers in, in, in Israel. We, we've talked about Deuteronomy 6 several times. Fathers are very clearly given instruction to, to uh, educate their kids and teach them all the ways of God at like <clears throat> every point of life, lying down, sitting up, along the way, while they're working. All of these situations, teach them these things. And the men of Judah, the men of Israel and Jerusalem, they had not been doing this. And it's clear to Nehemiah that this is a problem. If you look at the second half of verse 25, it, it shows the principle for why this was wrong. It quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 7 and it, about the covenant. Let me read that. It's in, it's in your notes, Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 6. This is very clear. This is what the covenant was based off of. He says, God says, you shall not intermarry with them, talking about these foreign nations, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And here's the reason why. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will destroy you quickly. But this shall you deal with them. Thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So notice in that very clear instruction that the reason for avoiding marriage with these people it really didn't have much to do with an ethnic background at all. It was about the worship of false gods. Look at what he says. He says, for they will turn your sons away from following me. This wasn't, wasn't about just them in the moment. This was about generations to come. Look forward. Consider the impact that your sin might have on your children and your grandchildren. 
and your great-grandchildren. So what are they supposed to do? Well, again, very clear. Break down the altars, dash into pieces, burn these things, annihilate them, get rid of them. There's not a lot of gray area here, right? The people couldn't say, well, you were unclear with what we were supposed to do. No, I'm afraid not. It's very clear. And why? Why were they supposed to do this? Because the Lord says, you are mine. Called out, pulled out, a treasured possession, different, to be different from every other people group on the face of the earth. You're mine. That's why. That's why they weren't supposed to marry in this way. Intermarriage, as we see, was both wise and destructive because it revealed a people who really lacked faith. It's first blank on your notes this morning. It revealed a people who lacked faith. The men in Jerusalem, they, they, they sought wives outside of the covenant group that God had given them because they thought they'd be more satisfied, because they thought they would have a better time. They didn't want to stay within the context and the boundaries that the Lord gave them, and so they found relationships outside of it. And I think we'd be short-sighted if we go through this text and we don't make some kind of connection with how God calls his children in any day and age to seek for a spouse. To be clear, again, though, I'm not talking about marriage between different ethnic groups or skin colors or even denominations within evangelicalism. I'm talking about what God's word says about how a Christian person evaluates finding a spouse to love and to be married to. Because remember, marriage isn't just about your fulfillment. Ephesians 5 is really clear about this. It's about a picture of Christ in the church. Your marriage is to glorify God above everything else. And so I realize there's a lot to be said on this topic, more than just this sermon could hold, because this isn't even the main point today. And yet the biblical principle is pretty clear. Christians ought to marry Christians. If you love the Lord, you ought to not seek out a relationship with someone who doesn't clearly love the Lord. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and he uses the, the, the farming idea of a yoke. We don't use this very often at this point or at all anymore, but a yoke was that piece of wood that connected to oxen. And those he was talking to in 2 Corinthians probably understood what the Israelites here would have understood and what was said in Deuteronomy chapter 22. It says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Now, that seems like a weird thing to say, right? Well, there's a practical reason for that. An ox and a donkey don't look the same, do they? They aren't built the same. An ox is significantly larger than a donkey. And if you try to team those things together, it's not going to work well. You won't get a straight line when you plow. They're gonna, one's gonna overpower the other. It's just, it's gonna be a mess in your field. And so just very practically, God tells his people, he says, don't do this, it's a bad idea. Well, Paul references that years and years and years later in talking about relationships. He says, uh, don't do it. And I think what Deuteronomy 22, <clears throat> And Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 have in mind is the difference between um, power and purpose. It's an imbalance of power and purpose when a Christian desires to be in a relationship with a non-Christian. 
it, it doesn't, they don't match. So Paul picks up and he talks about this. He talks about how it's not going to work when you try to be yoked together with an unbeliever. Now, there is grace-filled, loving scripture that is gives instruction on what a non-believing spouse is to do when they find themselves in a situation um, with with an unbelieving spouse or a believer with an unbeliever. I'm not sure if I said that right. But it, there's, there's scripture that tells us what are we supposed to do. Um, but we can see pretty clearly from Nehemiah, from Paul in 2 Corinthians, from Deuteronomy and the law, it's a recipe for disaster when we're unequally yoked. And I don't, I don't honestly think that 2 Corinthians 6 is only talking about marriage. I think it's talking about business relationships, um, being unequally yoked. I think it's talking about just friendships, being unequally yoked in those sorts of things. And I think direct context in 2 Corinthians 6, he's talking about uh, a church's desire to be culturally relevant. You can't hitch church, church, I'll just say this for our church, we can't hitch ourselves to doctrines and beliefs that are going to make us unbalanced when it comes to understanding and obeying Scripture. And I think that was Paul's main point. But it applies to relationships of all kinds. Certainly here in Nehemiah 13, though, it's undoubtedly clear. He says, linking your families and your futures with those who don't care about God or his ways at all will end in ruin. It will not go well. The first part of verse 25, if you want to glance back at that, it shows this, what Nehemiah is saying here. He says, I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. Now, there's a lot going on here, okay? And this sounds a little bit like WWE. That's why Jason mentioned this. This is kind of wild when you look at it. And uh, I just I'll say this. I said it last week. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. We've seen that throughout. But he's also a man of action. Okay, and this is that's pretty obvious here. He's he he took stock of the situation. Right, he comes in after years of being gone. The the mice have been playing. Things are not going well, and he's got to make some change. And so he comes in and he confronts their their sin. And he, uh, it says he contends with them. I think the King James Version says he contends with them. So it seems like the guys who are guilty of this in Jerusalem are, are actually like fighting him on this. They're pushing back against it. Are you sure? Or is, how could this be wrong? And all of these reasons, we don't know. But if you look at verse 27, Nehemiah responds to this question, really, and he says, shall we listen to you? Like, they're trying to talk to him and make some reason why it's okay. And he just says, should we listen to you and do this despicable thing against the Lord? And so they were just following an example, weren't they? If you look at verse 28, we see that. Reveals another treachery, unfortunately, of the high priest, Eliashib. Remember the first part of this covenant that they were breaking? They had let an enemy of God stay in the temple. He was renting rooms in the temple and worship was not working. And so Nehemiah throws him out. And now we've got another problem with Eliashib, the priest. 
Uh, it tells us that one of his sons had married a daughter of Sanballat. And you, you remember Sanballat. He was one of the guys who hated seeing God's people improve and build the wall. He was one of the guys who made fun of God's people. He tried to curse God's people. And so Nehemiah confronts him in verse 25. Uh, he considers this a desecration of the priesthood for Eliashib. And he, for all of them guilty of it, he considers it a great act of evil against God. And so he confronts him. And, he, and it says in verse 25, he cursed him. And I, I want you to understand, uh, Nehemiah is not waving a, ra- a, a wand around, like reciting a spell and cursing them. That's not what, he, that's not what this means at all. He's, he's reminding them of what they had promised to earlier when they said, and basically, we're going to do this, and if we don't, may God curse us. Well, guess what time it is. Guys, it's time for that if something doesn't change. It's going to happen. That curse will come upon you according to your own words. If you look back at chapter 10, verse 29, that's what they said. We enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law and to observe and do all the commandments of our Lord. And the very first thing they commit to in the verse after that in chapter 10, they say, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. They seem to know it then. Time has passed, compromise has slid in, and now they needed a bold person to come in and tell them the truth. And I actually think, despite the WWE nature of this, Nehemiah is caring for these people. I know it doesn't seem that way when he's cursing them and pulling out hair and stuff, but he he is caring for them in a very drastic and dramatic way here because he's telling them the truth that they need to hear. And in some sense, I'm really glad that he does it. I'm also glad I wasn't there to have my hair pulled out. Not that he would have had a hard time with it anyway <laughs> at this point. Um, we've seen Nehemiah take pretty drastic steps here to try to fix the situation. This is no different. And guys, I don't, I don't, pretend to know if Nehemiah was 100% right in doing this, but you can't argue with the passion. You can't argue with his desire to see things turn out good for his people. Certainly he was not without his own faults, but um, one thing that this reveals in his response to it reveals that this was serious. He's thrown furniture. He's threatened to lay hands on people. Well, now he's doing it. This is serious. It's a big deal. In fact, this is the only issue where Nehemiah exercises corporal punishment over. Um, but even this was according to the guidelines of the law. Deuteronomy 25 says that uh, there's an allowance for this kind of thing, for punishing the evildoer, but always in proportion to the offense, it says there. So Nehemiah was bold. Nehemiah was earnest. But I don't think he was unfair, and I don't think he was reckless so my suspicions are that in this process, it's not captured in the word here, but my suspicions are that there was some kind of um, judicial disciplinary process that these people went through and that a public display of discipline, which could actually have just been haircutting, cutting off their hair, um, that that was a part of this process, this disciplinary process. Um, I do think it's interesting to note that Ezra worked through the same exact 
issue like a hundred years before this. Nehemiah pulls out, well, when, when Ezra went through this, uh, I forget where it says, but it says he pulled out his own hair and his own beard out of, out of distress for seeing God's people, um, integrating worldly things into their lives in such a way. He pulled out his own hair. And so Nehemiah pulls out or cuts off the hair of the offenders in chapter 13. So based on this, I'm convinced that Nehemiah was a bald guy like me. He didn't have his own hair to pull out. So he started grabbing other people's hair. I don't know. Uh, but seriously, though, I, I don't think we should forget that Nehemiah, to some degree, still has a Persian authority. He's still under the authority of the king. He still works for the king. And so for him to come in and dispense judgment on an evildoer is actually allowable. If you look back, even Ezra was given this same kind of a thing. The king said, what you see fit, do. And so he could have been well within his rights to come and do that. But I want to take a step back for a minute. Because this kind of gets heavy and sort of weird if we're not thinking about it from a bigger perspective. First, Nehemiah gave a clear instruction, right? He reminded them. He said, don't intermarry with pagan nations because they will eventually turn the generations to come away from God. Then, now in verse 26, he provides a very clear example. So, clear instruction Now he gives a clear example, and he talks about Solomon. A really interesting way to bring up Solomon. Look at verse 26. I think Nehemiah is basically just saying here, look, if the wisest guy in our history was led astray by his desire for something God forbid, marrying foreign women, then who are you to think you're going to have a better outcome in this? First Kings, you can jot this down. First Kings chapter 11 tells really just kind of a synopsis of the sad story of the gradual compromise of Solomon. And I, if you, if you want to turn there quickly, you can. But first Kings chapter 11 verse two, it says that Solomon loved pagan women more than he loved God. That the text literally says that he clung to them in verse two. In verse 3 and 4, it tells how these women then turned Solomon's heart away from God. Verse 5 and 6 shows that then Solomon actually himself followed after them. The the word is pursued there. And then in verse 7 and 8 of 1 Kings 11, it says that he actually then went so far as to build the places to facilitate the worship of these false gods, including one named Molech. Some of you, that will ring a bell too. Um, knocked the thing off my mic here. I, I hope though, if you're there in First Kings 11, or if you just listened, that you see the progression. And I'm not sure if these women were intentionally, I'm going to see if I can do this. If these women were intentionally trying to, 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 deter Solomon from his uh, worship of the Lord, or if this was just a gradual thing that happened over time. It doesn't really matter in the end because of what happened. But there's a progression here. And I think this, what, what Nehemiah noticed in Solomon, I think that right there is why both Ezra and Nehemiah took such forceful action 
to stop the intermarriage issue. I really think this is why. I mentioned Molech. Uh, if you look in 1 Kings 11, Molech is a false god of the Ammonite people. In fact, um, it's according to Leviticus chapter 20, uh, it's talked about as the abomination of the Ammonites. And in chapter 20 of Leviticus, it says that if a Jew were to do what the Ammonite people did in worship, that they would be put to death. That's a big deal. What were the Ammonites doing in worship of their false god, Molech? They were literally offering their children as sacrifices. And so, as you can imagine, that's a detestable thing to the Lord. And so he tells his people, if you do that, you will also die. Because we don't want that kind of thing going on amongst our own people. You are a treasured possession, right? That's what he said. So this was a big deal. So I think, I think Nehemiah is looking into the future, if you will. And he sees, he sees if my, if my countrymen, if my people keep walking down this path, we could get there. We could end up there doing what they do, sacrificing our kids in the same way that they do, bowing down to a God like that. And so you know what maybe went through his mind? Maybe a a public beating and haircutting was worth the trade. I don't know. Maybe it was, though. Maybe it was worth it to make such a drastic change here to save his people from hundreds of more years of conflict and disobedience. Because if you think about Solomon's issue... I mean, his decision to marry foreign women led to a 500-year spiritual and moral decay in Israel. And it ended in child sacrifice, in prostitution, and in the Babylonian captivity where so many of them are now coming back from finally. Lasting impact that Nehemiah is saying, i got to do something to get their attention. And so, to wake up, his fellow countrymen, out of their sinful stupor, he goes to great lengths here. He really does. And again, I'm, I'm sort of glad that he does. Just like I'm glad when the Spirit of God turns my sin over to the light of Scripture and to the light of the Gospel, even when I don't like it. Because I need it. And I hope it's the same for you. I hope you look at this and you're like, man, that was drastic, but I kind of understand why now. And just like you can look at your own heart and you can say, man, the Lord has taken me to task at times and I'm glad he did because I needed it because we need it. Look at verse 28 back in Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah says that he chases Eliashib out of the temple. I tend to think that that's a literal (laughs) description of what he does. I think he literally chases the guy out. Of the temple. I think he chases him all the way out of the priesthood, all the way out of Jerusalem. I think he's gone. I think Eliashib is gone. And verse 30, 31, they talk about how Nehemiah sets things right. He cleanses the sac, the, the, the temple, the people, the priesthood, um, all of these things. He cleanses them and then he makes provision for them. He gets things set right. He reestablishes order of what's going on. As we close today, I just want to consider uh, 
Solomon again. I, I just think it's so interesting that Nehemiah brings him up, especially because it says how it describes Solomon as a man whom God loved. A man who was given more wisdom than really anybody else at the time. Even a guy like that fell into great sin. A sin that impacted God's people for generations and generations. Nehemiah asks the people of Jerusalem a question in this. And I think it's the same question for us too, even today. And it's something like this. If Solomon slid into compromise because he didn't protect against sin, what makes you think you can do something different and overcome it? There's a, there's a kid's book that uh, Mike and Liz Cannon got our kids. It's called The Promise. And it's a great book. I encourage you to pick it up if you have young kids. But it, it walks through Old Testament characters, heroes of the Old Testament, Noah, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, uh, David, a lot of these guys. And it points out the fact that even they sinned. They couldn't overcome it. Even, even a really good guy like Noah, right? The only righteous man in God's sight in all the earth. And as soon as he comes off of the ark, he reveals that he couldn't overcome sin on his own. A great prophet like Moses couldn't overcome it. A judge like Samson, super strong, did the work of the Lord in a lot of ways, He couldn't overcome sin, a very similar sin to Solomon and the men here. But even a great king, a king described as a man after God's own heart, like David, couldn't overcome sin. He couldn't conquer it. He couldn't do away with it completely. And not even a super wise man like his son Solomon could overcome or conquer sin. No matter how determined the people of God were to obey the law, to overcome sin and to maintain their purity, they just couldn't do it. The confession, if you flip back to Nehemiah 9, the confession there reveals that's true. Their forefathers have sinned. They continue with it even now. Their history proves it. In fact, this is, I think, one of the major, one of the two major themes in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's this. This is theme number one in your notes. The law was simply too great a burden for them as a sinful people. They couldn't overcome it. They couldn't keep it either. If it's not obvious, it's the same for you. It's the same for me. The law is too big of a burden for us to keep perfectly. We simply cannot be good enough on our own. You know what? It's supposed to be that way. That's the design of the law. It's to show us that we can't do it. You can try your hardest. Maybe you can make it the rest of the day without sinning in thought, deed, or action. But I doubt it. We can't. We can't overcome it. That's the point. So we need someone to save us. We need someone who knows the weight of the law, but never bowed to sin. We need... Someone who conquers 
sin, who overcomes sin in our place, on our behalf, and frees us from the burden of it. And so I think this propels us into the second major theme in the book of Ezra, and especially Nehemiah. And it's simple, and it's this. God is faithful. The people couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Sometimes they were trying. Other times they weren't. Nehemiah certainly comes in, tries to enact reform on the people, and yet he blew it at times. God is faithful. He's been faithful in bringing his people back from exile. He's reestablishing them as uh, God's people in the land, and he's enabling them to rebuild the town, the temple, the, the city of Jerusalem. The exile that they'd experienced is partially as a result of Solomon's sin centuries before. That's not the last word for God's people. Banishment and punishment is not the last word. Instead, God's faithful, steadfast love is. God is faithful in our lives too. If you think about your own past, if you're in Christ now, he has brought you out of exile to sin. He is reestablishing you as his own chosen, treasured possession, as his child. He's reestablishing you in his ways, not your own, and he's rebuilding you into a person fit for his kingdom. And all of this is through his son Jesus, who is the one who knew the weight of sin but never bowed to it. The one who indeed conquered and overcame sin and frees his people from the burden of it. And so as we step back and we look at Nehemiah as a whole, one of the things, really the biggest thing that I hope Nehemiah does for us is it points us to Christ. Who perfectly saves his people. Who perfectly purifies his people. As good, a, as good a leader as Nehemiah was, he couldn't do it for him. But Jesus does. Jesus can. And it seems like Nehemiah kind of ends on a dark note here. And yet I think he knows that the only one to trust is God himself. The God of steadfast love is how he describes him earlier. Whose word does not fail. And that God is faithful. Always. Thankfully, your story doesn't have to end in darkness either. The biblical story doesn't end in darkness. Through the death and resurrection of the only one beloved son of God who came to the earth, the people of God from all nations are made holy as they put their faith in him. And that's the light. That's the light of the gospel that you, despite your sin, despite your past, whatever it is, can have a home with God, can be reconciled to God, can be loved, are loved by God. And now considering the Bible's complete, complete revelation that we have access to, we can look at this and understand that Jesus is the reformation that Nehemiah yearned for. It's found in him. He's the one to whom all the law and the prophets point to. The light, John chapter 1 says, the light has shined as God's people of the new covenant. Even though we walk according to that light, we still walk, as Psalms 23 says, through darkness, through the valley of the shadow of darkness. 
in death. Our reformations, as, as well intentioned as they are, will fail. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue doing right and being right, but they will fail. We are still waiting for the day when Jesus comes again and institutes real, lasting reform and change. We look forward to that. And we can still trust Him now, believing His Word, and we can, as they were called to do, pass it on. Keep passing this truth on until that day comes. Do you see what Nehemiah is saying? How the people cannot overcome sin on their own. They cannot be good enough to the law by themselves. They need a Savior and you do too. Let's pray. We're, we're glad, Lord, that um, even when we don't understand all of this, Lord, you still make a way for us to be changed by it. Uh, you give your spirit. You give life. You give light. You give understanding. We can easily, certainly more easily see uh, the problems that were going on in Jerusalem. We could certainly point fingers and say, man, they really messed that up and that and that. Um, But I pray instead, Lord, you would turn that light of inspection back in our own hearts today. And you'd help us to see and be convicted by the truth that we can't overcome sin on our own either. And if there's any hope of life eternal with you after this life is over, we have to have something done with sin. And if we can't do it, we need someone who can. And the glory of the gospel is that he is the one who has come and done away with sin. He's overcome it. He is not bowed to it. And so therefore, your people today can still have victory over it. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give people victory over sin in their lives going out from here. That we would be people not who boast in our own goodness and our own ability to overcome, Lord, because we can't on our own. But, Lord, instead we would boast in nothing but Jesus Christ and his, Him crucified. Showing people the truth that His sacrifice is what's paved the way. What's made the way for us to be right with you. So I pray that you would reconcile our hearts to you today. In Christ's name, amen.